this morning. We're going to be finishing out Acts chapter 13, uh, beginning in verse 26. So if you're, if you're there, let's read the word of the Lord, and uh, we'll get after him this morning. Word of the Lord reads this way. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried him out, all, the, all that, or excuse me, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with the fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, you have made a, you a light, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this moment where we get to pause and receive your word. And I pray that as we go through this passage together, as your word is preached and received and pondered, that your word would do the work that you set out for it to do. That for the believers in this room, you would make us more and more like your son Jesus. That you would sanctify us. 
And if there's anyone in this room who does not know Christ, that your word would compel them to faith in Jesus and that they would be freed and find life in him. Holy Spirit, would you preach a better sermon than the one I have prepared? God, would you glorify yourself with the reading and the preaching of your word? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Most of us live pretty hurried lives. We run from one thing to the next, one task to the next, one place to the next. We're on the move, on the go. We wear busyness like a badge of honor, thinking that we're not pulling our end of, uh, holding our end of the bargain if we're not always doing something. We are hurried. Add on top of that, most of us live within the familiar. Here's what I mean by that. You tend to drive to the same places, you tend to eat at the same places, shop at the same places, hang out with the same people, go the same routes to places. And by the way, I'm not like disparaging that. I think that's a really good thing. As we talk about living on mission and leveraging your sphere of influence, it's very important for you to be local and to know people and to show up and to be consistent and be uh, at the same places and, and get to know cashiers and baristas and, and those different types of things. I think that's a really good practice. But the danger that many of us face, when we mix hurried lives with familiarity, we tend to not be present and miss out on the beauty of what's around us. And so it's like you're driving to some place. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. You're driving somewhere, and it's a, it's a route you typically go, and so you're not even paying attention. You show up to your destination. You go, I don't even know how I got here. It's just second nature to you because you're always there. It's very familiar to you. Those of you who have had that moment, uh, raise your hand so we know not to ever get in a car with you. I'm just kidding. You have to raise your hand. But this is, this is what happens. We're getting hurried lives. We, we, we hurry. We're familiar with things. And so we tend not to be present and we miss out on the beauty of what's around us. So let me just ask you a few questions. When was the last time that you were moved by the sunrise or the sunset? Were you present in that moment and you recognized it for what it is? When was the last time you were stunned by the beauty of music or art? You had a moment to actually breathe and to receive and to listen and to see and be moved. When was the last time you savored the flavors in a good meal and enjoyed the presence of good company? When was the last time you were in awe of God's grace in the friendships you've been given? You were like consciously aware of those things. There is beauty in the familiar but many of us are so hurried that we don't know how to be present to recognize that beauty. And so it all just kind of becomes mundane and we begin to take for granted the goodness of God in those things. I don't know if you've ever thought through that. Here's my larger point. There's a lot of us in this room who have been Christians for a long time. Now, there's some of you who, who maybe Christianity is new to you. You wouldn't even call yourself a believer. You're just here processing the teachings of Jesus, wanting to see what the church is all about. But for a lot of us, you've been Christians for a while. You've been Christians for years, some of you for decades. Like my, myself, like my stories, I've been a follower of Jesus since I was a young boy, and I've been to church a lot. Like I'm constantly at church, right, throughout my childhood. I've read the Bible several times. I've been, in, like, and that's, a, I'm thankful for that. I'm not disparaging that. I'm thankful for that heritage. But here's the danger for many of us is that we've become so familiar with the gospel that we are no longer moved by the beauty of God's grace in our lives. We take God's grace, his mercy, his salvation, his love, all of the things that he's given us, every spiritual blessing of the heavenly places, Ephesians tells us, we take that for granted instead of being moved to worship the God who has saved us. It's like someone who's grown up near the Grand Canyon or the Alps, 
who fails now to see the beauty and the grandeur and the majesty of those places. It's the same way we often fail to see the beauty, the grandeur, and the majesty of Christ and his resurrection. So church, what we could do this morning is we could look at this passage that's filled with the story and the message of salvation, and we could go, you know what, I got places to be, and you know, I'm getting kind of hungry, I've got other stuff going on this afternoon, if we can just kind of hurry it up, we've already heard this, this is not that big of a deal, Let, let's just hurry through it. Or, or, we could look upon the mountains of God's grace and worship. Let's do that this morning. Let's do that. Let's look at the mountains of God's grace. In, in verse 26, remember, uh, last week we looked at how Paul and Barnabas, they're in this synagogue, they're at church, they show up at this place, they go to the synagogue, and, and they get an opportunity to share a word of encouragement. So Paul starts motioning with his hands, like, I got something to say. So he gets this opportunity to speak to the congregation. And in verses 16 through 25, Paul begins to go through the Old Testament, summarizing major moments in Old Testament history as a way of helping people see that God ultimately was sovereignly orchestrating things to bring about a Savior to Israel, namely Jesus. That's what we looked at last week. And then he continues on in verse 26, which is what we're starting with this morning. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, that is his audience are a Jewish, ethnic Jewish people who have grown up in a synagogue, who are followers of Judaism, and also Gentiles who are sympathetic towards uh, Judaism and, and are uh, uh, following the customs. They're not ethnically Jewish, but they uh, follow the customs and the religion, the practice of Jews. He's speaking to these people, and he says this, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. And this is where we see the first peak on the mountains of God's grace. To us has been sent this message of this salvation. Now, initially, I want you to notice the phrase, has been sent. In the original language, this is a passive verb. And so the question that we need to ask is, has been sent by, by who? Who, who sent this message of salvation? And the answer is God. God is the sender of the message of this salvation. He is the one, Paul says, who planned it long ago, who orchestrated all things to bring about salvation for the nations. And I don't want this to get lost in us because these are the types of things that we just go, yeah, we've heard this before. I don't want this to get lost in us because here's my fear. My fear for us is that we've become so inoculated to the massive, life-changing, soul-restoring reality that the only reason we have been given salvation is because God desired to save us. God desired to save us. Our salvation is not rooted in our behavior modification or our being good enough or even in God being obligated to save people. There's no one forcing him to do that. This was out of his own pleasure and his desire. Our salvation boils down to this. God delights to save sinners. Out of his deep love for his own, God has given us the message of this salvation. This is why later Paul will write in 1 Timothy chapter 2. God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. Here's the picture we see in 1 Timothy and what Paul's writing to his protege. God desires to save people. Paul said, you know how I know? Because I'm the worst and he saved me. And real quick, I, I hear a lot of people say, man, I, just, I, I don't know where God is. I haven't, I haven't been able to find God. It feels like God is distant from me. God being the sender of the message of this salvation means that he's not playing a cosmic game of hide-and-go-seek with us. 
Like God is not playing hard to get, right? Like God is clearly communicating to us this morning, whether you're a follower of Jesus or you're not, he's, he's saying through his word, we've been brought to this moment in this point in this passage in the book of Acts for a purpose so that we would hear clearly from him, this is the message of salvation. Here's where I'm at. I want you in. I want to see you come to a knowledge of the truth. I want you to be saved. God is being very clear with us this morning. Like, isn't it such a kindness of God that he would give us his word that would ultimately have the message of salvation in it so that we could be saved? Isn't that a kindness of God? And when it comes to our being saved, it's important to understand the God-centeredness of our salvation. The God-centeredness of our salvation. Here's what I mean. In our culture, and what I mean by our culture, I'm talking about Bible Belt, I'm talking about I'm talking about cultural Christianity. We're here, we've conflated being a follower of Jesus with voting Republican, and we've conflated all sorts of like being a Christian means that you have just gone to church your whole life and you try not to drink or smoke or cuss, and as long as you do those things or don't do those things, you're probably in a good spot, which that rules a lot of us out, right? So uh, I'm not putting anybody on blast, including myself, but, but in our culture, we have this cultural Christianity, and so in that, there's this tendency to view our salvation rooted in what we've, d- we've done, Right? Like we've become so inoculated to the gospel of grace that we begin to think my salvation is based on me being good enough or my pedigree or my heritage or what I do or don't do, the behaviors I do or don't have. And so there's this tendency to view salvation as something we need to do or steps we need to take. We may not articulate it that way. We may sing songs about grace, have conversations about grace, but over and over what we tend to do is when we fall or when we sin, we don't worship God for his grace and his forgiveness. What do we do? We hide ourselves from him and we try to do a lot of really good things so we can work our way back into his good graces because we completely misunderstood grace and mercy. And over and over again, I've had conversations with people about the relationship with Jesus, about their salvation, about their hope, why they have right standing before God. And I hear in these conversations, they often turn into resume sharing where people will say things like, I just try to be a really good person. I just, you know, I just try to go to church and not do bad things. I'm trying to change my life. I, 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 over and over and over again. When we talk about our salvation, we begin with the pronoun I, don't we? Now, in a few weeks, we will discover the importance of works as evidence of salvation through the book of James. It's going to be really, really important for us to understand how the gospel plays out. We're saved by grace, but then propelled to mission and to to love and good deeds. But the reason that many of us don't have a firm foundation when it comes to our salvation, the reason many of us doubt our salvation, the reason that many of us feel the need to ask Jesus into our heart over and over and over and pray the sinner's prayer just, as, just in case, right? Anybody ever, anybody ever do that? Like you go to a, a conference or an event, they're like, hey, just pray the sinner's prayer. You're like, I've been saved for 20 years, but just to make sure, I'm going to say it one more time, just in case it didn't take, right? We've done that. Like, this, is, this, is our, this is cultural Christianity because we don't really understand what it means when we're baptized and what it means to hold fast to the confession of faith. But I think the reason that many of us do that over and over is because we have put too much emphasis on what I have done and we have not learned to hold fast to what Christ has done for us in salvation. Let me be clear. Christian, your salvation is not your accomplishments for God. Your salvation is not your good works. Your salvation is not a list of activities that you have or have not participated in. Your salvation is a person named Jesus. 
It's a person named Jesus. Verse 23 in Acts chapter 13, what does Paul say? This is before our, 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 this is what we looked at last week. He says, of this man's offspring, speaking of David, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. In Romans 10, later, Paul will write Romans 10, and he outlines the message of salvation, and he speaks, and just to summarize it, he says, our righteousness, that is our right standing before God, our salvation, is not found in our ability to keep the law. Ultimately, we're lawbreakers. Even if you keep nine laws and you break one, the tenth, you're still a lawbreaker. It's not found in our ability to keep the law, but our righteousness, our salvation, is based on faith in Jesus. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be, fill in the blank, it's on the screen, saved. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be, oh my goodness gracious. Okay. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be, thank you, good, he is good, good, good. Verse 17, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul is saying exclusively that salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. Which, by the way, Romans 10 leads us to mission. If this is true, that means that we should be taking the gospel, the the name of Jesus, to our neighbors and to the nations. Before Paul was saved, we hear this sermon from Peter in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. He says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. saved. Thank you, Christian both by name and by standing before God. So in this way, the validity of our hope and salvation is not rooted in what we are doing, but in what Christ has done. Let me say that again. The validity of your hope and your salvation is not found in what you're doing or what you've done. It's what's been done for you by Christ. It should cause some of us to breathe a deep sigh of relief. Because you find yourself constantly messing up and failing. And you have this voice in your head, the voice of the enemy saying, you are not worthy. You are so messed up. You're so dumb. You don't belong. And you get to say to him, yeah, you're right, but Jesus. We don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to vindicate ourselves. We don't have to pull ourselves up. We get to lean our weight fully on the person and work of Christ Jesus for us. How can we be certain of this? Verses 27 through 37. I won't read them again for time's sake. But Paul's audience is a Jewish audience who have been very familiar with the writings of the Old Testament. So he shows them how Jesus is the fulfillment of what the prophets preached. And what Paul says is that due to their hardness of heart, he goes through the story of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, due to their hardness of heart and their spiritual blindness, those who should have seen Jesus as Savior, who was promised, instead condemned him to death. And unknowingly, they fulfilled the prophets. And in their hatred of Jesus, they wrongly convicted him, they beat him, they flogged him, they stripped him, they spit on him, put a crown of thorns on him, and nailed him to a cross, and stuck a spear in his side. And I want you to hear this. While they believed they were putting to death a blasphemer, they did not recognize that they were bringing to life the good news of Jesus. 
And so Paul here recounts Jesus' death and burial as central to the message of salvation. And in verse 29, I want you to notice this phrase. It says, took him down from the tree. He doesn't expound on that, but this is important. Again, as a Jewish audience, they would have been very familiar with this language. We talk about the cross. They would have understood the language of a tree because they would have had the words of Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, resonating in their head when uh, Paul says this. And Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, anyone who hangs on a tree is under God's curse. That is God's judgment. And so the fact that Jesus was hanged on a tree, that he was nailed to a cross, meant that though they found in him no guilt, there was no sin in him, there was no wrongdoing, there was no crime that he deserved this punishment, but he was still sentenced to hang on a tree and become a curse for us. And here's the other mountain peak of God's grace that I want us to pay attention to this morning. The curse of the law the judgment of God that you and I deserve because of our sinful rebellion against the Holy One of the universe was placed on Christ and he took it willingly. It was his plan. It was his idea. And if that's not amazing enough, he didn't take it so that we would get another go at it. Right? We A lot of times we talk about God being the God of second chances. When God gives us salvation, he's not giving us a second chance. He's not saying you better not blow it this time. When God gives us salvation, he gives us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is why Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Church, God is not just the God of second chances. He is the God of over-the-top, lavish grace and blessing towards us in Christ Jesus. He is the God of transformation, and he is at work in each one of us by the power of the Spirit and by the work of Christ at the cross. God's grace is amazing. Now, everything I just said does not matter one iota if Christ is still dead, right? Sometimes when I'm with like friends or family, my wife or daughter, I'll, I'll say something like, I'll give you a million dollars if you can like, complete this challenge, right? And so a lot of times, like if the song's on, I'll say, if you can name this band, I'll give you a million dollars. Or watching like Thunder Games, if you can tell me the whole roster where they went to college, I'll give you a million dollars. And a lot of times, they won't, they won't do it. Be- why? Because whether they complete the challenge or not, it doesn't matter. I don't have a million dollars. As a matter of fact, I, haven't even, I don't even know what it looks like. I know that's surprising to a lot of you because I drive in my new whip, that 2012 Volkswagen minivan, and you're thinking, there's not a lot like that. It's confusing, but I... I'm barely a thousand there, right? Like I, this is the reality. And so I can't back that up. I make these big, bold promises, but there's no way to back it up. And here's my larger point. If there is an unmarked tomb in the Middle East with dusty bones of a Galilean teacher named Jesus still in it, then there's no reason for us to be here now. As a matter of fact, this would just be the world's worst TED Talk. Some of you watch TED Talks. But here we see in verse 30, the greatest event in human history. But God raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the verification of his identity as Savior that God promised to bring salvation to the world. Without the resurrection, we have no good news. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. Without the resurrection, we have no salvation. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is alive. 
And here's why this is such good news. In verses 33 through 36, Paul quotes a couple of Old Testament prophecies that find their fulfillment in Christ. He quotes from Psalm 2-7, from Isaiah 55-3, and Psalm 16-10. And in each of those passages, I'm not going to read them, but the context, the fuller context, has to do with the eternal covenant, the eternal kingdom, and the blessing and joy that comes in the presence of God. And so what Paul is saying is that in the resurrection of Jesus... Christ has become the fulfillment of those promises. Jesus will inherit the nations and his kingdom will have no end. Jesus is given an everlasting covenant, which means the love of God for him and for his people will never end. Jesus will never see corruption, that is death or decay. And for all who are in Christ, though we die, we too will experience a bodily, physical resurrection and enjoy the pleasures of his presence forevermore. What is true of Christ and the promises given to him is true of us as well for those who believe. And then comes the final peak of the mountain of God's grace that I want us to see. God is the sender of salvation. Jesus is the content of our salvation. And the result is the forgiveness of sins. Verse 38. Can can for a moment, can we just ponder this? Can we just sit in this for a moment? There are some of you, there's a lot of things we can say about forgiveness of sins. But there's a lot of you this morning who feel so guilty, you feel so ashamed, you feel so broken and busted up, and you feel like you are unworthy and unwanted by God. And the reason you feel that way is because you know the secret sin of your heart. And you're just in bondage. You don't know what to do, you don't know what to say, you don't know where to go. And the fact that I'm even saying that, you feel like I'm talking to you specifically, like I've read your mail and you're like squirming and starting to feel a little bit sweaty, right? But there's people in this room, this is you. You need to hear this. That there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you this morning. What the gospel of Jesus says to you this morning is not try harder. It's not stop messing up. It's not how dare you. What the gospel of Jesus says to you this morning, your sins are forgiven. And you can be set free. Verse 39, everyone who believes is freed. That word freed is actually the word we get for justified. It's a theological legal term that means that we have been made righteous before God. Or another way to put it, we are made how we ought to be. True freedom is not found in believing in ourselves or believing in our ability to be good enough. True freedom, church, is believing that Jesus is our Savior who became the curse for us, who died on the cross for us, who rose again in victory, and now the only thing left in that tomb that Christ was laid in is our sin and our shame that held us captive, and we can now be free. This is the grace of God. God is the giver of salvation. Christ is our salvation And freedom and forgiveness is given to those who believe. Every time the gospel is preached, there's always a response. You've seen this from the beginning, and it will be this way until the end. And throughout church history, every time the word of salvation, of the message of the gospel is preached, there is a response. And there are two ways to to respond, even this morning. Here are the two ways. We see it in verses 40 through 52. I'm not going to read those, but you can read them again later. The two responses to the message of salvation. One is rejection. The other is rejoicing. Rejection and rejoicing. Some of the Jews were filled with jealousy and tried to contradict what Paul was saying. They rejected the gospel, and the reason they rejected it is because they didn't think they needed forgiveness. 
They didn't think they needed salvation. They, they thought they were better than that. They, they could do it on their own. We don't need it. It was offensive to them. Listen, what keeps us from being in awe of the grace of God and his salvation is the fact that many of us don't really feel like we need saving. Uh, we got back from a trip to Florida a, few, a couple weeks ago, and I checked the mailbox thinking that I was going to find a whole bunch of like, you know, adult stuff, bills and whatnot. And, and instead, to much, much to my confusion, there was um, a, a little plastic sack of old toys, uh, a little yellow toy periscope thing, and, and some tortilla chips scattered in my mailbox. This is true. This actually happened. Like, why would I make this up? And so I open the mailbox, and I look at my wife and I'm like, what's going on in our, oh, in our mailbox? Did our friends say that? I was like unsettled. You know how like people mess with you in a way that like no damage was done, but it's just kind of unsettling. Like, I don't know, was that, was like some guy a little bit inebriated, like walking, like, I'm going to throw some chips in this mailbox, like just mess with his mind a little bit, it worked. Or I thought maybe our friends was playing a prank on us, like this is the weirdest, worst prank ever. And I was like getting frustrated. My wife was like, just calm down, clean it out. I still need to clean it out. But, uh, but a couple days went by. Gosh, this has been a bad day for me telling her about things that she should have known. Uh, a couple days go by, I get out of the car, and I hear this little voice from across the street, this little five-year-old boy, my neighbor. He goes, hey, did you get the stuff I put in your mailbox? <laughs> yeah, they're like the toys. Yeah. And the tortilla chips, that was you too? Yeah. Do you like it? Yeah, man, thanks. <laughs> it was awesome. I totally, like, we needed, we were having guac the other night. I was like, we should go to the mailbox. Grab the chips. This is perfect. Like he was so like he was he was trying to give this gift and it did not translate to me at all because I had no use for any of that. I didn't think I needed it at all. Like he was just so excited. So externally, I'm like, bro, thank you. I love that you committed a felony and messed with my mailbox and threw a whole bunch of stuff in there that now I have to deal with. Thanks for the chore, man. I love this. On the inside, I was like, what are you doing at my house while I'm gone? This is how a lot of us feel about salvation and about the gospel. I'm not saying salvation is the equivalent of chips and toys in your mailbox. The illustration doesn't go that far. But our attitude oftentimes is we go, I don't really need that. That's actually, I don't want that. I'm good without it. That gift is not that impressive to me. That's a dangerous place to be. But the response of the Gentiles who were being invited into the family of God was much different. In verse 48, we're told that they began rejoicing, and in their joy, they began to tell others. Just as an aside, church, if you're a Christian, one marker to tell if you're more like the Jews in this story of the Gentiles is that you want to tell other people about the grace of God. If you have no concern that other people are saved, it may be an indication that you yourself are not. And begin rejoicing, and telling others. I've been, we'll close this way, I've been rereading the Gospel of Mark in the mornings and the story of Jesus in the Gospels. They're just dripping with the grace of God. But the end of this story reminds me of what Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. He's partying with the marginalized, the unwanted, the unworthy, the rough crowd. Like when you think of church people, these are not necessarily the people you think of, but are probably the people you should think of. But while Jesus is partying with them, the Pharisees ask, why is he eating with those people? And what does Jesus say? You remember? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I think a lot of times we read that and we think of Jesus being smug, like this is a mic drop moment, like I don't want you Pharisees, get out of here, you're not welcome here. I actually don't think this was a mic drop moment. I think this was a grace-filled moment for Jesus towards the Pharisees. 
Jesus was saying the people who receive mercy and forgiveness and joy and life and hope are the people who know that they're spiritually sick. He wasn't telling the Pharisees, I don't love you or I didn't come for you. I came for those people. What he was telling the Pharisees is he was inviting them to see themselves as those people and be saved. So hear me. No matter what your bank account says, no matter what your family history says, no matter what your Instagram image management profile says, you are those people. There's no one in this room whose sin is too great that Christ can't forgive them or whose sin is too small that they don't need forgiveness. Today, church, we are invited to walk in freedom, believe in Jesus, and rejoice. Let's stand.